Thank you, thank you, thank you. Guys, I really don't have a lot of time. We've got so many interviews lined up, not to mention John Fogarty. So I just want to take this time to really quickly let you guys know that October equals Halloween, which is my favorite holiday. So if you check out my blog at stmort.blogspot.com, I'm going to be writing a horror movie review every day in the month of October. So you better go check some of those out. And also, on Geekscape.net, I wrote an article uh, called What the Fa- what Your Favorite Muppet Says About You that got on IMDb. So if you guys haven't read that yet, go ahead and check that one out, too. Um, and now, it's all up to old-timey radio personality to kick this off. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for Skype with the Stars. All right, and we're back with our get our first group of guests, uh, Sax Carr and Tim Powers, the powerful duo that runs Fandom Planet on Geekscape.net. Well, I Aww. wish I, I wish our our uh, our numeric la- or our nameathonic last names had something that would be powerful and blank, but it's like powerful and mobile car, <laughs> Pow- powerful and automotive duo. We are Powers Car. Hi, how's it? I'm Sax Car. I'm Tim Powers, which is what you're li- listed as in my phone. Because I didn't know who I was actually talking to on the Powers Car Facebook account. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually me. That's a that's a distinction we'll make here. The Powers Car Facebook account is traditionally Tim. Yeah. Yes. So now it's why there's so many monkeys references. That's on it. true. Now you guys have actually been doing Fandom Planet for a little over a year now, right? I would say it's about a year. Yeah, yeah. about a year. And then before that, we were uh, under a different title, mm-hmm. different management. Yep. Uh, struck off on our own. Yeah, and uh, Jonathan was good enough. He said, "As long as Geekscape exists, you guys will have a home." And mm-hmm. we've, you know, the show that we did before was pretty powerful and pretty successful. Yeah, and uh, Sax and I just seem to work well together. Well, that, that was the thing too. I mean, I don't mean to sound like some sort of weird romance story, but like I, uh, we had both appeared on uh, Comics on Comics, which is a web series that uh, Jonathan hosts now, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I had appeared occasionally as host, and, and I'd also been on several episodes as a comedic guest. They had comedians and comic book creators, and Tim had appeared on one as well. Right. And like everything I do, I tend not to watch it because I don't, <laughs> I don't, I just don't. I don't like watching stuff I'm in. Uh, you know, once I once I created, it, it's for people and not for me. And I don't even watch episodes of things that I do that I'm not in traditionally, which Tim hates. But I had not seen Tim's episode, the live the live show episode. Right. And uh, Blair Marnell, who was doing Comics on Comics Radio, brought Tim on to do an episode. And I was re- just really charmed by how quick he was. And, like, we really, like, I would, I would, you know, when you're, especially we were, in that case, Skyping in. So he wasn't in front of me. So I was sort of, like, throwing balls up in the air. And he was actually knocking them out of the park. And there's a lot of, not everybody can do that. So I think it was almost, like, right after that where I called yeah. him up. And I was like, hey, listen, I know you don't know me. And we've never met in person. But we should be a team. 
and we were ever since. That's a lot better than the Match.com story we usually tell. Yeah. <laughs> I was hopeless and waiting for someone to find me in Seattle. And Tim, <laughs> Tim was man with mustache 24. That was a lonely Well, m- And I, I remember meeting you guys for the first time was a little over a year ago at my first ever San Diego Comic-Con. Yes. When I was pretty much stuck at the Geekscape booth. Yes, you were Geekscape's bitch. All all week. And uh, you guys kept running by to like grab stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was just like quick, like, hey. And then you yeah. guys were kind of gone. <laughs> we need another microphone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, we, we, uh, um, and then like yeah. literally two months later or so, there's a show that you guys are hosting on Geekscape. And I'm like, yep. this is great. Because mm-hmm. it was... It's a lot of what I hope the St. Mort show is to people, which is a throwback to like old radio, yeah. old talk show type format. Right. Well, we actually remember you very, very, very much from that time because you had sort of, you know, Comic-Con, for those of you who have never done it before, is is controlled chaos at best. And uh, there's... Controlled is a generous term. Uh, yes. And there's um, there's a lot of factors going in. So this was Geekscape's first year with a booth, if I remember correctly. And Correct. like, they had all these shirts and they had arranged all these people to show up at all these different times and... Signings. Yeah. And, and they and they would all they had also basically told Comics on Comics, who was working with them, to like set up signings. And there had been, you know, the, the, the meeting where they had decided to check schedules against each other had apparently been postponed indefinitely. So there's a <laughs> lot of like, you know six different people would show up at the booth at once and then would, who invited you and what's going on and don't stab me ow ow I'm bleeding why won't anyone help me right. like that was the and and I have a lot of scars from that <laughs> yeah but you were the guy who came from like Dubuque or whatever as far as I could tell <laughs> who was like in charge of making sure the booth didn't light on fire and like you were helping everybody you worked with everything there and you were you were clearly a big functional part of it and then I remember as you like as, as we were ending Comic-Con, John turning to me and me like, this St. Mort guy is going to be involved a lot more with us and doing this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, sounds good. And then I forgot <laughs> I about that until about an hour ago. he works for free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why. <laughs> um, well, and it was... And then, you know, the following year, you guys... Again, I, I saw yeah. you here and there. And uh, the first time I actually got to meet both of you was like a month ago at a comedy show. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I'm surprised you're not blocking that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to tell this story? Well, okay. I mean, uh, and this is actually... Uh, I've thought about this a lot since. Uh, this is very much an outlier from how I tend to perform on stage. But... Um, it was awesome. Though. Thank you. See, but that's I mean, why like, it was so different. Yeah. <laughs> Ass. Um, so... <laughs> So Tim, Tim and I were on the same show, and, and everyone knows that me and, and uh, Brian Walton occasionally get to loggerheads. I don't know why. I think it's the size of his head. But he, um, <laughs> we, we uh, and so we were both on the same uh, comedy show, and I, I had to follow you, and you had done some, let's say, avant-garde musical material. Now, when you say you, you mean you mean St. Mort. Yeah. Because the, the lineup was me first. Yes. Then St. Mort. Yes. Then you. It was Tim Powers. Did, did you you were first first? Second. Second. I was second. Oh, so he followed a musician as well. Yeah. He yes. Followed I was Dr. in Dave. a guitar sandwich. Yeah. You, so you you followed Dr. Dave and then you went up and did quite well. Thank you. And then St. Mort came up and actually did quite well, to be fair. I'm, I, I, let it never be said that you didn't actually resonate with the audience. <laughs> but it was a very distinct resonance that was musical yes. and, and had a, a very long, very long, aggressive gets in your ear, nests there, has baby's song about getting slapped in the face with your cock, <laughs> I think. Right. And um, and so, and I, just something about it just like juked me and, it, and what I would say is the wrong way, but in a very comfortable sense. And I got up and I, I defenestrated you on stage. <laughs> 
but it worked really well with the audience. And then, of course, like so often happens in high school cliques, as soon as I found out I could get some leverage out of making fun of you, I never stopped. <laughs> and, um, and I rocketed to the top of the social circles, and there's been a movie adaptation of it called Mean Girls. And I... Um, <laughs> no, so... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I had a lot. I I, I had some unflattering things to say. I mean, my absolute favorite is after you got off the stage, having just played. I said, "Oh, I'm sorry. Did I get the wrong memo? I forgot my guitar, but I brought my dignity, and that was <laughs> probably too deep of a cut." Uh, what's What's sad about me as a human being mm -hmm. is that this is going to be a know, long I'm, show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is actually going to turn into therapy. Uh -huh. Is that you know I've been out here for about three months, and I'm. I'm constantly in contact with my family and I called them the next day and I was like, I did this comedy show. It was great. I was like the star of the show. Everyone had mean things to say about me. It was awesome. Like I, I was, cause my mind was just like, obviously I made some type of impression. Right. Like, right. Which is better than making no impression at all. So I was like, all right, I'll take this. I'll well, take this where it, where it can go. Well, uh, Tim Tim um, has a guitar bit in one of his routines, and, and I, I, we've talked about it at, at length. I I don't think you can do musical comedy and not be open to some amount of like so, like parody or like uh, like some sort of it, musical comedy is never is never serious. Like, you're never on stage being like this is some really serious amazingly well-wicked comedy. If you're playing with a guitar, you're essentially making fun of yourself and the song at the same time. And if someone comes up after and says, like, that song about farts was really funny and so was the guy who did it, you've kind of invited that and that's actually a victory in the world of... Like, they're, they're, like think about it. They're, like, you don't think of Stephen Lynch as being, like, this, like, really deep... Like, Stephen Lynch and George Carlin are not, like, compared to each other because guitar comedy is just simply not... It's just not a, like a, you know, a, you're not making you, n none of your songs about getting hit in the face with your cock was a, was actually a veiled comparison to like the Darfur disaster. Mm. It's it's a step above ventriloquism. Yes. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yes, and two steps above you know uh, pulling a toilet seat out of a trunk and making a joke. But, you know, it's it's there. And and, and 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 you actually you know what what if if there are several. If there are categories by which you judge a comedian, stage presence being one of them and delivery being one of them, in those cases you ex you are certainly excelling comedically. Like you 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 own that audience. Like I e even even after my very good set that I think for whatever reason the audience is with me on, I probably could not have gotten them to sing a chorus of slap 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 me in the face <laughs> with my with your penis. Like they would they would probably just been like, no, that sounds foul but you were like hey everyone sing with me and people were like okay we like this guy you know See, that's and the difference between the two of you and your level of personal charm because yeah. you, you know when saint mort does it it's cute when you do it it's an invitation yes and that's that gets troublesome yes it does well, and I, I don't always bring bail money when we do a show <laughs> <laughs> Brian Walton, who put on the show, mm -hmm. is a uh, is my roommate, mm -hmm. and him and I tend to get into a back and forth argument over everything, pretty much everything. But one of the big ones is that I'm constantly saying I'm I don't consider myself a comedian. I don't mm -hmm. tell jokes. I, I do things that sometimes are funny, but to me, I'm more just kind of like an entertainer. Like I'm mm -hmm. just up there. I'm trying to get a crowd to clap and sing along. And I've even told him before, like I would be more comfortable if I played like eight to nine before the show started just right. as like a warm-up than like in between a bunch of comedians because i agree completely with what you're saying for starters it's a dick move yeah. to make anybody have to follow mm -hmm. a crowd that was just clapping and <laughs> singing along to ace of bass right like, <laughs> <laughs> to be yeah in fact ace of bass has the same uh <laughs> <laughs> concerns 
that they don't like to they don't like people to follow them. Also, they really want to stop being an opening act again. Um, <laughs> I, I would say though that that uh, what happened was I think in many ways is d- when the comedy boom happened, there was a lot of what I would say, and I don't mean to loop you, lump you into this, but there was a lot of what I would classify or bracket as vaudevillian performers who had been performing on stand up stages in much the same way that you did for a while, and they all wanted a piece of that money. And so, and and people who were trying to market those people also said, well, they've been performing where stand-ups perform. It's pretty much stand-up. It, you know, it, to make it easier for Comedy Central to stomach it, we'll call it stand-up. Right. It's not. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. All kinds of different types of performance exist. But, like, when you're going to draw boxes, when you're drawing a Venn diagram around things, stand-up comedy is a person and a microphone and an audience. And when you incorporate something else, it's a different type of performance. Is it wrong? No. Does it deserve to be on a stage with comedians? Of course. But do you want to call it stand-up? It's, it's, a, it's a fallacy to call it stand-up. It's a, you, you, stand-up is a specific art form in the same way that painting versus video art are different art forms or even improvisation versus yeah. stand up which people still don't understand the differentiation between the two but they don't they don't always in fact very rarely mix well together if you've yeah. ever been to a comedy festival yeah. where they're like hey let's have comedy and then we'll have we'll have short films and we'll have stand up and we'll yeah. have uh, musical comedies mm-hmm. and you know it doesn't they don't always work together because the human brain can't shift gears between those types of comedy together. Right. Actually, I just I just bumped into a woman in the bank who had uh, my first show in L.A. that I ran myself. Like I performed yeah. in L.A. for a while, but I, I ran my own show at a place called the McCadden Place Theater. Right. And the woman who ran the McCadden Place Theater was sitting next to me in the bank, and we talked for a while. And she goes, "You know, I've always wondered why you named your show, which is a, like a, a variety show, a night for Gern Blanston." And I go, well, I, I, can't, I named it that because Gern Blanston is a fictional character created or referenced by Steve Martin. And Steve Martin always did essentially a variety act. I mean, he was classified as a stand-up, but he did stand-up. He played banjo. He did improvisations. Right. He told, like, different types of jokes. And he did magic. So I had a magician, uh, uh, like an old bluegrass band, and a bunch of comedians on the stage. And I said, well, this is pretty much our tribute to what he fit into one person. And, of course, I just let the audience miss that joke yeah but like that that but you know in, in many ways that i like variety shows i you know my show at unknown theater which tim has also played and um you know is is a show that had a band behind it and that welcomed would have would happily have had you on it P.S. <laughs> and right. that was a that was an award-winning show. show that we were in well yeah. what but was what was difficult for me uh this is that particular night was my second time ever doing a comedy show okay i'd been doing saint Moore for about 10 years but it was a completely different world because previously the character was created from me throwing shows in like church basements and firehouses mm-hmm. and being fed up with talentless bands that thought that they were the next big thing. And I created the character as strictly a parody. So like as an opening act to a punk show, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. But again, like I, I'm like, you know what? I'll do the comedy shows because I have fun doing it, but I would much rather be playing at like the warp tour on a side stage where right. I'm making fun of the audience that's in front of me mm-hmm. whether they know it or not. <laughs> well, yeah, and that and and there's something beautiful about that. I I it, to side note for a second now, there, there was a there was a warp tour comedy tent as I'm sure you knew. Yeah. And it was headlined by a guy named Mac Lindsay 
And when I was on tour, like around Texas in our tour, we had started to run out of money because we, we weren't making as much on stage as we were spending to just like travel and eat and get really loaded. Which is with pretty much everybody on the Warp Tour. <laughs> yeah, well, we weren't on the Warp Tour, but we, we were on, we were on, um, we, it was my stand-up tour that was, yeah. like, it was the, the Insiders of Comedy. And we played a show at the Cap City Comedy Club in Austin, Texas. And uh, there was a sh- and and Dustin David, who is was my partner on that show, uh, had to do one show, and then we were going to be on the main stage the next night. And Dustin gets up, but before him is the guy who like headlined the Warp Tour comedy show, Mac Lindsay. <laughs> and Mac Lindsay's comedy, which was already quite aggressive, having done Warp Tour for all that time, had become like screaming attack comedy that was like directly in your face and as foul and huge as possible. And, and the man's a brilliant writer, and I really love his comedy. But like he had learned that to, to get attention at Warp Tour, you have to be like, "Who's killing babies? You probably are!" Like just like screaming and jumping on speaker towers and whatnot. And so that preceded Dustin, and I just like saw Dustin like turn and look at me like ghost white, like he was a man going to the gallows was trying to follow that. He did very well, by the way. But like the the yeah, warp tour like playing for those audiences is a different art. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. I, I appreciate that you even refer to what I do as art. It is art. <laughs> oh, shut up. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I actually am quite well known for riffing on what comics ahead of me have said. Right. I mean, uh, uh, Tom Frank, friend of the show, had a very serious concern about my album where he goes up and goes, you know, you're funniest when you're talking about what the guy ahead of you said. Like, you're tagging that. How are you going to simulate that on an album? And I go, I'm not. And then, bless his heart, Tom just kind of looked at me like, you're doomed, but didn't say it and goes... Yeah. Okay, and then walked off. Thankfully, the album has turned out the quite good. The album holds up. <laughs> yeah, but um, so like riffing on you would normally have been something I would have probably done anyway. I would have taken one of your jokes and gone forward with it or something like that. But when you, you gave me the opportunity to sort of like play with the, the, the medium you chose, I don't mean to denigrate it. Oh, it was absolutely. By no means. And, and, I, and I actually found everything but the ace of bass part, which I'll never truly forgive you for, um, <laughs> to be quite entertaining. <laughs> That was literally uh, the the month previously I'd played, and uh, I had covered Old Dirty Bastards, Baby, I Got Your Money, and got the whole crowd to sing along, and I was like, I want to see if I can do this again. <laughs> and I was like, but I want to try to get them to actually sing, like, various parts. Mm-hmm. And, cre- and I, you know, Walton had come up to me afterwards and was like, I don't know, man, I don't think, I, it was my bad, I probably should have told you mm-hmm. not to do the Ace of Bass thing. And I was like, dude, I got the audience to sing three different vocal parts at once like for me that was worth it like mm-hmm. even if it wasn't the funniest thing because for me it's all about just like let me see how interactive i can actually get this audience to become and if i can get them to do that i feel like i've i've succeeded for that mm-hmm. night because that's it's a great audience yeah, too, like, man. Well, it was a really good crowd uh, like that's another big thing because it could go equally oh yeah. as bad well that <laughs> show is always very good to, to walton's credit i've never seen a room that is so consistently hot <laughs> and I and I really like that about that room. There's a comedian, Ian Salmon, who I recently had a chance to see. He's a was uh, from an older black man, and he looks a little bit like Bill Cosby's eldest son, but delivers a lot more like um, uh, you mean his eldest TV son or yeah, his, or, el- his or el- the late Ennis. No, no, his his eldest TV son, like mm-hmm. uh, Theo Huxtable. He looks right. like he looks <laughs> like Theo Huxtable with dreadlocks, but but somehow manages to channel Sam Jackson as well, <laughs> and alternates between being like your friend. And like super awesome, and being like sort of like angry black man, you've accidentally said the n bomb in front of, you know what I mean? <laughs> and the audience goes from being like ha 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 to to ha ha ha, 
and he gained so much emotional control of them after like the first 20 minutes of that sort of like joke 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 I'm angry for some reason joke 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 what do you really mean by that like joke 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 that he had them eating out of his hand <laughs> and I went over afterwards and complimented on him and to admit like as an asshole like I, I just kind of assumed he was doing this uh, control accidentally please tell yeah. me you didn't tell him that he's a credit to his race no okay. but <laughs> but I did say that after and he goes that's the point he goes that is what stage performance is like once I've yeah. taught them to accept their emotional state from whatever comes out of my mouth then I can do whatever I want and he goes you only saw me do 30 minutes imagine that over an hour and a half like once I've got them then I can like I can make them laugh and cry and they and, and they condition themselves to follow me on it so it's like if you start doing the ace of base stuff earlier in your routine it'll get to the point where the audience just becomes a giant orchestra that you can sort of dictate <laughs> and make them laugh at themselves see but I mean? that's the thing you and i sex you and i are influenced by the stand-ups of the middle 50s mm -hmm. you know your um your mort Sauls and your your shelly berman's and mm -hmm. you know the thinking man's comics yeah even tom lair to an extent and it's a far cry from the comics who were before that. God love, you know, Abbott and Costello yeah. and guys like that. Um, but, you know, it's a little more thinking than, you know, drop your pants, hit me with a pie, right. yeah. do some seltzer. You know, those guys, the 50s guys, wanted people to think about stuff and wanted to really reflect on what's going on in the culture. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like um, Will Rogers, you know, who was, just, who was basically what, Jay Leno is today. Hey, Congress is crappy. Ha ha ha. You know, yeah. well, actually reading the Warren report, you know, got people thinking about it and it got them thinking about it while they were laughing. And that's, I think, carried on in the Daily Show tradition. Well, I have to well. say, it's, it's difficult doing songs like Slapped in the Face with a Penis mm -hmm. and then being a huge fan of someone like Louis C.K. Right. And like watching you know dvds and stuff on streaming of like the bill hicks story and stuff like that yeah. and going like what am i really contributing to the to the world of advancing comedy well i, I think it's, yeah i mean it's it's i'll say straight up there's there's that level where i'm not quite ready to to show the real matt kelly mm -hmm. on stage which is what comedy is is peeling away yeah your your you know everything and showing who you really are mm -hmm. even as a character of yourself but you know now to 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 go forward first off i've always i say this all the time and I've, I've actually quoted like an already in two newspapers for this which is dumb but i've always been charmed by in the brief history of the world part one how um uh mel brooks his character is a stand-up philosopher <laughs> and I've always thought that, that in reality, stand-up comedians are, are the last philosophers. We're the last. We're like When we get up on stage, whether or not we're doing it for some sort of socially motivated reason, we're really sort of discussing the human condition in a way that was previously like at the forum. You know, like guys in togas would just sit down and go like, love, does it really exist? Let's discuss. And now the only place you can really do that, other than like bad AM talk radio, is to get up on a comedy stage and sort of discuss it. But there have been different interpretations of it, and as much as I think he has been responsible for more bad comedy, not by himself, but by imitators than more than anyone else, Andy Kaufman really sort of explained the human condition by forcing you to be part of it. And there is an art there. And while, while it's not the same as George Carlin, who sort of just said, like, okay, listen to my words and think about them, you'll be laughing, but let them sort of burrow into your head and be the seeds of ideas, Kaufman was just like, okay... You just felt sad, you felt happy, you were disgusted, you were mad at me, you walked out, you came back, 
Why did all those things happen? He never said it out loud, but he was just as much as a social commentator. He was just a, a commentator on what it is to be a person. Lenny Bruce would say it out loud. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he would do a bit where he would drop the N-bomb. You know, mm-hmm. and then find the black guy in the audience and go, you hate me, don't you? Mm-hmm. You absolutely hate me just because I used one word. Mm-hmm. Just a word. Just mm-hmm. a word. Could have been yeah. flour. Could have been cake. Could have yep. been anything. But I used one word and now you hate me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a really powerful thing. Well, Andy Kaufman always reminded me a little bit of, uh, I can't remember who the music, musician's name is, but there was that musician who did a performance once that was called Silence. And it was literally just two hours of him sitting at the piano, not playing anything. Mm-hmm. And the the... Symphony was the sounds of the audience reacting, yeah, and getting up and leaving and coughing and and complaining and like that was his symphony, like that was his point. Well, and I was like, I see that as a lot of, you know, I do really respect Andy Kaufman. I, mm-hmm. I and like you said, he did also open the door for a lot of other people trying so hard to be Andy Kaufman right. that it's just you can't. There's a a great episode of Murphy <laughs> Brown, which by the way, is, I I just realized recently when someone talked about Murphy Brown's assistant of the week or whatever it was mm. that we don't talk about Murphy Brown nearly enough. It was a really good show and everyone loved it. Why is why do we still say things about Cheers and whatnot but no one ever says anything about Murphy Brown. But anyway, you know the painter that she had painting her house forever that was like a really great character. He did a show at one point and he painted a mural on the ceiling and uh, but he wasn't ready in time so that the premiere audience is shuffled into the room and the tarpaulin is over the, like it's covered by a, a sheet. And they're looking up and they go, and someone goes, I get it, unfinished. Work is all about being unfinished. And this is unfinished. And, and then he goes, no, 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 no. It's just not, I just haven't pulled it. And he starts trying to like pull the ropes to, to pull it back so they don't get the wrong idea. But they're all going nuts about essentially a sheet over uh, uh, the ceiling. And he pulls the wrong rope and it drops the sheet and it just falls down and covers everyone in the room. And they go, I get it. We're the art, and it's just like, and, and the, the, that's sort of like the the the, the forced avant garde, like the 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 level of of like trying to force art to happen for art's sake never works. And you get those people who just have learned now to accept that whatever they don't understand must itself be artistic. But it, it honestly, there is something to be said about going up on stage. Like I would love to see a documentary about a comedian who's very good, but in the middle of his set has one joke that just doesn't work. It's simply a not a funny joke. It's not offensive. It's just not funny. And then films every set, like in every city for like a year, and just you see some audiences that laugh anyway because <laughs> they like the guy already or they're kind of caught up in it. Some audiences that are turned off and he can never get them back. But like you know he's good, then he has two minutes of bad, then he's got the rest of it good. And just watching that experiment would be very interesting to me because audiences are strange in that way. And that's the kind of thing that actually kind of tickles me. I just don't know how to perform. I'm, I'm just a sort of loud, weird, improvisational performer, and it's just a very different... It's not a tool I have. See, and I run a real tight set. Yeah. So the the response that I get from different audiences, I have to kind of tailor a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because you get the audience who goes, hey, listen, man, when I come to a comedy show, I don't want to think. Mm-hmm. You know, you get those. Or you get the ones that are like, oh, I really like that, you know, subtle point that you made about the the hatred and violence that comes after divorce, mm-hmm. man. I think that's really far out. And I- you never really know what you're going to get until mm-hmm. you're in the middle of it. Yep. So, you you know, uh, you can you can do a, a wonderfully philosophical art history joke about Marcel Duchamp and then follow it up with a fart joke mm-hmm. <laughs> and save it. Yep. 
I mean, uh, there's definitely times too where like, uh, and I, I hate when comedians or anyone gets sort of ahead of themselves and starts deciding that it's not about their them as a performer. And, and but by and large, you know, we've commoditized comedy now, and and it is something that when someone goes and pays money and they buy a two drink minimum and they this that and the other thing, they kind of want to laugh or at least enjoy themselves or at least know it's coming. Like people going to Andy Kaufman late late Andy Kaufman career kind of expected I don't know what's going to happen here but I'm willing I'm a willing participant whereas like when you go to a comedy show people want to laugh and I've been in the middle of like you know one of my hoity-toities I wear like a suit on stage and like you know I have a lot of things to say phases but five jokes in realizing the audience just wants to hear about like fucking <laughs> and just been like, oh, well, let me tell you the story of the time I had some awkward sex, and then the audience just goes nuts, you know. And you and you walk out of that set, and you you it's it's hard to look at like the art what artistically you left on the table when you're also feeling that high of having made an audience really laugh, and and also feeling like a skilled craftsman, and that you're yeah. like, I realized what you wanted, you know. I wanted you you clearly wanted to build the table upside down, and while as a person who's a, a carpenter, that seems stupid to me. But you paid me to build the table that you designed, and I gave it to you. You wanted to laugh. I found out what made you laugh. I made it happen. It was a non, a never-ending pussy joke with 125 extremely similar callbacks, but it happened to work. You know. Well, thank you guys for coming by. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to go to commercial break. I'd love to have you guys back sometime. We will definitely be back. Anytime. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll be back after this brief commercial break. Hello, sir. I'm Cluck the Bussy. If the new hankering for real crawl, the lot might auto part. Look no further, pilgrim. Club the bussy, auto shop fixing to earn your business. I can't deal with plastic scrap, so cash only. Be located at Fifth Coffin Street, adjacent to the Waffle House on Route 20. Thank you. This Racist Dad brought to you by Gringos. Gringos, where Mexicans buy their jeans. You're listening to the St. Mort Show, and from Fandom Planet, this is Tim Powers. And Sax Carr. Keep listening. All right, and we're back with Paul Goebel. Uh, a lot of you might know him if you grew up watching Beat the Geeks like I did as the TV geek, but he also runs a podcast and his own website. Uh, Paul, it's great to have you in here. Oh, it's great to be here. It's very nice that uh, you grew up watching me because that means I'm an old man. <laughs> I Not only did I watch it, I watched it and thought I could be on this show. Yeah, not as not against the TV geek. To be honest, oh good, that was not my uh, bread and butter. But I, I was like, I could give that movie geek a run for his money. <laughs> he got challenged the most, obviously, <laughs> and a lot of people thought they could beat him. But he did. You know, I the second season, I tracked all our uh, all our wins and losses, and he did about fifty percent. He got he got he won he won his challenges in the last round about fifty percent, and I mine were about seven fifty. I I did about seventy five percent. Nice. So, and the music geek, we had like two or three different music geeks, but uh, Andy did okay. He didn't get challenged as much. But yeah, everybody thinks they know movies because <laughs> you know, everybody goes to see movies. But he got challenged a lot. It was, uh, it was a fun show. It was, and, and it's funny because there's a lot of people like your age now who have graduated college and high school and are in the world and are adults now who watched it when they were kids. Because, you know, I get recognized when I was on the show. And then, you know, it, this is 10 years later, obviously showing away. But then all of a sudden, like I would go to a store and some young person 
would go, were you on Beat the Geeks? I was like, yeah, how old are you? They'd go, I'm 20. I'd be like, <laughs> oh, okay. So you would come home from school in junior high and you'd watch Beat the Geeks at night. I get it. And it's it's like a resurgence of that. And I'm trying to pitch another geeky game show, but uh, I don't know. Nobody wants to make game shows anymore, I guess. Yeah, for I, I mean, for I remember being a kid and, you know, I didn't watch Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. I watched yeah. Rock and Roll Jeopardy and Beat the Geeks. Like, those were my... My shows because yeah. like I don't want to feel like a complete idiot watching Jeopardy. Like <laughs> no, I know tough. music, I know music, I know movies, I know yeah. a little bit of TV. Like at least I feel like I'm mm-hmm. I'm part of the show when you know the the actual. Yeah, questions. well, it was good. I mean, it was it was like you know Jeopardy, but pop culture only, and it was nice. And then we'd have the guest geek who was very specific, and people, you know, I know people at home would go, "Oh, I know more about South Park than her," or "Oh, that wrestling guy sucks," and <laughs> and it'd be people like that. But then you get like the Playboy geek on, and people were like, "Oh, that guy's weird. He's a creepy weirdo. <laughs> he re- he knows too much about Playboy." And but I bet there was still somebody at home. Somewhere in America going, oh, I know more about Playboy than that guy. <laughs> he doesn't know anything. Some old man, you know. Now, how did you even get the gig on Beat the Geeks? Uh, well, I knew the producers because I was trying to, you know, get like a game show or some kind of show going based on what based on what I used to do in stand-up, which was mainly answer trivia questions and stuff. And uh, And I met with the producers at the time. They were producing the X show on mm-hmm. FX. And... Uh, and I was like, eh, we talked about whatever. And somebody, and I guess they had talked to Comedy Central about doing a new game show kind of to pair it up with Ben Stein's money. And so they said, well, let's do something with Paul. And uh, why don't we just have like a whole pop culture thing? And so I was the first guy they came to. And then they tried to find a movie guy. They actually talked to this dude who works at Cinephile. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to do it. Uh, I, I don't know how they got his name, but they went and talked to him. He said, no, I'm not interested. And he goes, but there's this guy who works next door at the uh, at, at the uh, movie theater who you should really talk to. And that was Mark, the movie geek. And so that's how he got the gig. And so then it all it all came together. And uh, it was funny. You know, we did two seasons and it was a lot. It was a blast. It was great while it lasted. And then Comedy Central kind of, you know. Had a regime change and they canceled all their game shows. And well, and Comedy Central went. seems to like change their mind on shows after two seasons for almost everything, unless you're yeah. South Park. Like, yeah. like even like, yeah. you know, I can't think of that many shows that lasted more than two or three seasons on there. Well, it's it's hard because you know bec- there are they are basic cable, so they have certain limited, you know, they're limited by certain things. You know, South Park obviously was uh it's almost an anomaly they got it right away before it became popular they kind of scooped everybody and it still makes them millions and millions of dollars not just in in advertising but you know in uh uh uh, with toys and products and you know and and video games and all the crap they can do with it obviously because it's uh it's a cartoon they can do they can get away with that whereas ben stein you know ben stein's money it was a expensive show to produce already yeah in the first place and then what else can you do with it you can't rerun it yeah you can't you can't really sell it on dvd because it game shows don't work that way um you can't sell toys or or a home version of it you know so there's no really there's no there's no money afterwards i i don't know i think it's kind of weird with certain shows like there's certain things where i think people buy just for nostalgic value where I wouldn't be yeah. shocked. I'm not saying that people would definitely, but like I think a beat the geeks, at least like a best of DVD. Yeah, I people mean, might possibly. buy. Like it's po- like I've always I've always campaigned that you know talk shows don't really get put out on DVD. Right. But I would argue that if NBC actually put all the seasons of late night with 
Conan O'Brien on DVD that they would actually sell. Well, it's only if <laughs> the only time they do that, like you'll find like Carson, you, you Carson uh, for a while they put them all out on VHS, but that wasn't by NBC. It was like his company did it. Yeah, and that's the problem is that you know networks will never do that. But if you own your own show, you know maybe long after Letterman retires, you know somebody because he owns his own show, so yeah. somebody will put a bunch of like classic Dave Letterman's and those won't even be the NBC ones. Yeah. Those will be the CBS ones. Someone will put those out on DVD and you know, he'll give all the money to his kid or something like that. But with, you know, the stuff that comedy central does, they'll put a lot of money into it or rather they'll put some money into it. <laughs> and unless it becomes really, really popular, it doesn't, you know, the bottom line is, and this is, I was told this by the executive who was in charge of our show when it was all over. I said, what are the chances we'll get renewed? And he said, well, the bottom line is, you need to show that you made money. Yeah. And I said, well, I think we did that. And he goes, probably. But who knows what will happen between now and the next season. And then we did get renewed. And I said, okay, so can we get another season? Because that was the big deal. If we could get a third, what wasn't even a season, it was a third like order, we would all have gotten a raise. And then uh, our contracts would have been up after that one. So, and that's when they look at. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so he was like, the bottom line for this is it has to show a a uh, significant bump in revenue for the second season. Yeah. And if it doesn't, you definitely won't get a third season. And we didn't. And, and everything went away. It was like that Ben Stein battle bots. Oh, every, battle yeah. Bots. Every game show they had <laughs> went away because they got this new, uh, this new woman in charge of development. And she, uh, she didn't want the second guy who was in charge. She didn't want to work with him anymore. So she fired him and then she had to get rid of all the shows he developed because then she would have had to pay him for that. Yeah. And he developed our show. So it was like, it was just a cleaned house. And then. That's a shame. You know, yeah. That is like a real, like, and then when I think about it, the only two shows I can think of that lasted more than maybe two seasons on Comedy Central off the top of my head were both probably really cheap to produce, which was South Park and, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 are both. Exactly. Minimal sets, minimal right. crew, like. Yeah, and it's a lot easier to make your money back when you only have four guys running the show on Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Right. Yeah, and South Park <laughs> is is a little more expensive now because Matt and Trey obviously have a bigger paycheck. But again, there's more opportunities to make money on South yeah. Park. They're, that show is still making money. The DVDs and the syndication and all the products they have, you know, it's still making money. And those guys, at this point, they have very little to do with the show. They just yeah. write it and send in the scripts, and everybody else does the work. So. And with MST3K, you know, I think at, at a point they event they knew they either had to ask for more money or they had to quit. Yeah. You know, look at all the people who quit the show while it was still on. You know, Frank and Joel and all those guys eventually said, I can't do this anymore. But now they're all back doing riff tracks and, and I mean. Cinematic Titanic. They, yeah. they really are. It, it's funny because all those episodes are now up on Netflix. Watch Instant. And I can mm -hmm. find myself rewatching it. And it's yeah. like, you know what? They weren't all winners. But it's still one of the most unique concepts it's for amazing. a show ever. We <laughs> were watching. We were we were just scrolling through because we have the Roku box, and we were just scrolling through, seeing what was on. And I and I was like, "Oh, MST three K. Let's let's give this a a watch." And um, and amazingly, I watched it with my kids, and they laughed the whole way through it. And I thought, "This is crazy. It still yeah. holds up." Like, I'm already. I'm still laughing. Uh, <laughs> amazingly, you know, all this time later, but the kids were laughing at it, and I thought that's that's just crazy that they 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 find it just as funny as I do. Well, it's one you know? of those shows which no one gives them credit for, but I think that show put a lot of terminology 
into into people's vernacular. Yeah. There was an episode uh, where they watched a Mexican Christmas movie called The Santa Claus, <laughs> and they used the phrase nightmare fuel. And I use that constantly now because it was such, like, mm-hmm. just the way they used it at that particular time was such a perfect yeah. turn of phrase. And it's like, you know, you think of, like, the South Parks and the Simpsons and all these shows that created these slang terms, but there's definitely a little bit of vernacular that yeah. came from just a bunch of guys watching movies my favorite part was in this one episode we watched uh this guy breaks into it he he opens a door and runs into the room and crow goes nobody expects the spanish inquisition <laughs> and, and my I, my kids have watched that episode of monty python and they laughed out loud i was like wow i was like so many levels here they get it because they watched classic monty python and now they're watching this and they get that and i was just like this this is i mean that's there's right there is proof of that's great comedy well and the other thing they do that me and my friends have been doing for years before and i think people do all the time is they would hear a song like an opening credit song and they would sing another song that was the exact same song like and like you can do that constantly. You'll listen to it yeah. like an old B movies theme song. You're like, oh my god, this is the rhythm to hooked on a feeling. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what I like to do whenever like we're at the movies, like in the actual movie theater, in the ending, you know, the the last song over the credits. If it's if it's just an instrumental, yeah. I like to put words to it. I'll sing it, and it's like <laughs> drive. This is the theme from Drive. <laughs> He's a driver. He doesn't carry well, again, a gun. Like they instilled that into us them yes. singing the movie's title and who the actors yep. were and now after beat the geeks you're still doing comedy you're still doing your podcast you're still running your website right. um after all these years tell me a little bit about your podcast for the people who have not heard it um well it's called the paul Goble show uh, i named it after myself and i do it with my friend uh jim bruce who uh he's my co-host and best friend and we've known each other since high school and uh, we have, uh, you know, we have a rapport that has been refined for over half our lives. And ostensibly, we talk about television. We talk about what's good on TV, what's new, what's old, um, you know, what we saw, what we want to talk about. But, uh, you know, for the most part, it's just us having a good time and talking to each other and getting each other's opinions. And we also have our friend Tom, who is on the show. Uh, he's sort of the voice of reason because he's much younger than us. <laughs> and uh, whereas I'm very, uh, you know, I'm very opinionated, especially when it comes to television. Tom is a little more reasonable and he's always willing to disagree with me, which is is nice. So we will have a lot of heated arguments about, you know, for the past two or three years, we've talked a lot about Jay Leno and Colin O'Brien, yeah. you know, uh, many times. And I'm very passionate about that, that, that whole thing. And we'll talk about things like that. And, uh, you know, and Tom will be the voice of reason, but you know, there's, uh, you know, there's plenty of running jokes uh, about, you know, things we do. We've done almost 300 episodes now. And uh, wow. yeah, and, and we do and we do a weekly show and then we always have a guest every week. Uh, there's a different guest, whether it's someone from TV. We've had Greg Grunberg on and Jerry Manthe and Neil Flynn has been on. And uh, usually, though, it's it's just a comedian friend of ours, you know, somebody I, uh, that we know. just started showing my roommate Scrubs mm-hmm. for the first time. And when I explained to him that Neil Flynn pretty much improvised 90% of his scenes in Scrubs, it yeah. blew his mind. He's one of the most underappreciated oh, television actors. He's brilliant. Well, it's funny because I watch, you know, The Middle with my kids. Uh, they think it's hilarious and I think it's very funny too. And, you know, he was on and we and we got to talking about, you know, I asked him if he does improv anymore. He said, not really. He said, I, I don't want to have to 
start falling back on my old tricks and it's kind of a young man's game. And, and I was like, Oh, that's really, you know, cause he respects the art a little too much to, yeah. to do that. Cause he used to be in a group with uh, Brian stack and, uh, and all these really funny guys, Dave Keckner and guys, it was called beer shark mice. And it was like really <laughs> brilliant at, uh, improv. Um, but he was, he was such a cool guy and talking about all the stuff they did on scrubs and all the freedom he had and what a great gig it was. You know, and I was just like, boy, it's that's a great, it's it, a great life. It's not what uh, you know someone who prides themselves as being all about pop culture should brag about, but I consider it my favorite show of all time. It it had, and and in rewatching it with my roommate who's never seen it before, mm-hmm. you you really forget how well it balanced comedy and drama. How well it. Uh, I have a mom who works at a hospital and she mm-hmm. said of all the hospital shows it's the most realistic because it depicts it the way it is people die and you can't stop it right and you have to make jokes in order to get through the day you like, know i remember when i was a kid uh this cop came to talk to our class and someone asked him what's the most realistic cop show and he said barney miller <laughs> and they said why is that and he goes well you know the shows that you watch on tv with all the action that happens once in a great while where we chase a guy or shoot a guy you know, that doesn't happen. What what there's a lot of paperwork and more importantly, we joke a lot because it's a stressful job and it's there's a lot of bad things happen and so we make a lot of jokes. And I was like, Yeah, sounds about right. And Scrubs is the same way. I mean and they even said that in one episode. They said, Yeah, the reason we make these jokes is because people are dying around us and other if you get bummed out by everyone dying, I mean that's what you sign on for when yeah. you're a doctor, right? Or when you're a nurse. <laughs> they tell the it's kind of in the job description. Someone's gonna <laughs> die. And, and you have to, you have to protect yourself or else you will go crazy. It's like, you don't take a job as a, uh, as a preschool teacher, if little kids bug you, you know, <laughs> it's like, if you have a problem with little kids, uh, you find a way to deal with it when you're a preschool teacher. But, and, and, and I think, and scrubs did it really well, you know, and, and they were all different. They all, you know, they all, you know, made their jokes or made their life easy in a different way, you know, and. Yeah, obviously, you know, Dr. Cox, that's, you know, one of the best characters ever on TV, you know, and and they were all, and also when I keep, it's again, it's funny watching my friend watch this because it's only season three and he still thinks Kelso's this horrible human being. (laughs) And I'm like, it's really amazing how you watch that character grow though. And they start, you know, when you get to those later seasons, they start to show the wizard behind the curtain and they show how it is emotionally for him to be that guy. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody has their, and everybody has their part to play and, 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 you know, and, and they know that and the way that just the way they treat each other and they're all, the other thing is everybody's good at their job too. Yeah. It's not, you know, even the guy who was the shitty doctor became a great mortician. Exactly. (laughs) Because he couldn't keep people alive, but he's great with the dead. So (laughs) it makes perfect sense, which is, uh, you know, how things work in the real world. If you want to be successful, you focus on what you're good at. And so, and it was, and, and, uh, I, I talk about on my, on my show, how whenever I pass by that, the hospital where it was shot at, I always point it out to whoever I'm with. Even if I've done it before, even yeah. if they already know, have heard me say that, I go, "Hey, you ever watch Scrubs? Here's where they shoot that. Here's where they shot it right there." I say <laughs> that every time we go by it to my kids, my girlfriend, anybody, and to the point now where when we drive by it, uh, my girlfriend will now cut me off. She'll go, "Hey, isn't that where they used to shoot Scrubs?" <laughs> before I can get it out. 
Uh, now you also have a website that you run. Yes, uh, you know, I uh, uh, a long time ago I started this website when uh, I started performing. It's thekingoftv.com, and it was just basically a, just a, a touchstone. People can send me emails or uh, ask me questions or whatever. But I just got it revamped. Uh, uh, my friend Dave, he uh, he redid it for me, and it's really cool. And um, it's like there's a blog there where I write about different TV stuff. You can listen to the podcast there. You can uh, see it. Like I make a video every week of what you should watch on TV, just picks to watch. You can watch that. There's a a trivia game there that you can play and, you know, try to answer trivia questions. And there's also a link to Jim's website on there. So there's a lot of cool stuff on there. But we, uh, you know, it's kind of the place to go for all your king of TV needs. (laughs) <laughs> and people write me, you know, that you can go there and you can write me. And, you know, I, it's funny because I get questions all the time. People who listen to the show or people who just remember me from uh, from Beat the Geeks. And they're like, hey, I, I was trying to remember this show. Do you remember what it was? Or where can I find episodes of this show? There's this one guy who writes me every six months or so. And it's and he says things like, why did they cancel this show? Or, hey, is this show coming back? Or, hey, when can, when can we expect this show to be on DVD? <laughs> like for some reason i'm his touchstone to to the television world i know everything that's going on and 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 it's weird because like he asked me i think he asked me about batman or something like why isn't an, a specific season of batman on dvd and i was like i really have no idea none of them are going to be on dvd yeah because uh, dc doesn't want to give up oh right because it's too much of a goofy depiction of yeah. batman they i don't said I, I said i'm sure it has something to do with with the comics and dc but <laughs> Uh, I don't know the specific reason, you know, and, and in most cases it's a licensing deal. That's the bottom yeah. line when it comes to that. But I get emails from people all the time and uh, you know, and they go to the website and they check it out and, and it's fun. And uh, you know, it's just the place where, you know, it's my online presence, I guess, for the King of TV. All right. Well, we're going to have to go to a brief commercial break and then uh, a good friend of yours, John Fogarty is going to be. Oh, in the studio. Yes. Thank you so much for setting that up for me, by the way. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. But um, John's happy to I, oblige. I do have one quick question for you. Yes. If you could tell my audience one TV show that they've probably never heard of, but should have seen, what would it be? Oh, one show in the history of television that they could still see or just like if they ever get a chance. If you could ever get a chance to see a show, be it finding a bootleg or, or anything. Well, um, I mean, there are plenty of like pilots or shows that didn't get, you know, a big run that I thought were great. But in recent in the re- in recent years, one of my favorite shows was uh, on FX. It was called Terriers. And I think it was on last season. It only ran one season and got canceled. But it um it starred Donald Logue, and it was I thought it was brilliant. It it was him and his partner were like uh, private detectives, and it's kind of it reminded me a lot of the Rockford Files because they were not glamorous at all. Right. And it only ran for one season, and nobody watched it. But um it's got a great arc. Even if you watch just the one season, it's a great arc from beginning to end. Great characters. And uh, I don't know if it's available on DVD, but I bet you could watch it on Hulu or something like that. FX and Hulu. Uh, they work together. So I would say that watch the entire one and only season of, of uh, Terriers. If, if you haven't heard of it. Hey, thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Uh, We'll be back after this brief commercial break. World beats, trip, slick, hot, and heavy given to you daily. Every morning, drive time radio guest DJs with your host, Jeremy Wainwright. That's me. Right here. KCKRO. 
kicking your caboodle with Doc for your noodle. You fight in the end. You fight in the Ladies and gentlemen, John Fogarty. I see the bad moon rising. I see trouble on the way. I see earthquakes and lightning. I see bad times today Don't go out tonight Well, it's bound to take your life There's a bad moon on the rise I hear hurricanes are blowing And I know the end is coming soon I fear rivers overflowing I hear the voice of rage and ruin Don't go out tonight Well, it's bound to take your life There's a bad moon on the rise All right Hope you got your things together I hope you are quite prepared to die it looks like we're in for nasty weather one eye is taken for an eye don't go out tonight well it's bound to take your life there's a bad moon on the rise i said don't go out tonight well it's bound to take your life there's a bad moon on the rise Woo! Okay, John, that was amazing. Thank you so... That's, first of all, to get to play guitar with you is an honor, but that's one of my all-time favorite songs. How did you write Bad Moon Rising? Well, you know, it's a funny story. Um, I've always, you know, growing up in Louisiana... You hear so many weird and crazy stories about, you know, witches in a swamp or a zombie. It's kind of like that episode of Scooby-Doo. I don't know if you've ever seen it where there's a witch and she's pushing her little boat through the swamp. And there's a zombie that she's, uh, you know, she's controlling him to, to steal people's things. Whatever. Of course, it was an old man in a mask. But... It, growing up in Louisiana, you hear plenty and plenty of stories like that. And whenever there was a full moon, somebody in school would always say, Oh my God, you have to go home after school and whatever you do, do not go out at night. Because it's a full moon tonight and you never know what will happen. There might be a werewolf. There might be a zombie or a Dracula. Something's going to come out and get you in a full moon. Now, I personally was never scared, but my brother Tom, oh my God. He was a chicken little. He thought for sure that something was under the bed and going to grab him 
every night it was a full moon. It was actually quite funny. I mean, I don't mean to tell tales out of school, but that's how it went. Now, uh, you also, you, you touch on horror and the occult quite a bit. You also covered, uh, I put a spell on you. That's correct. Which is uh, probably one of the best covers of that song. Oh, well, isn't that nice of you to say? You know, Screaming Jay Hawkins was a friend of mine uh, from, you know, many, many years ago. And um, he one time, we were uh, just out at a club enjoying ourselves. And uh, there may have been some uh, illicit activity, you know, you could say. I don't want to, uh, you know, put him on display. But what I'll say is, we were just singing our songs, and he was, you know, singing some of my songs, and I was singing some of his songs, and he said to me, you really should do a cover of I Put a Spell on You. And I said, it's so crazy that you should say that, because I once had a voodoo doll that I dressed up as my brother Tom. I'm sure you, you've heard this story. And I dressed it up as him, and I put a pin in the wiener, and the next morning, Tom came in and said he had chlamydia. And I was shocked. And I shared this story with Screaming Jay Hawkins. And he said, well, then, it's a done deal. And right then and there, he wrote on a napkin. He gave me permission to do a cover of I Put a Spell on You. And I went ahead and I did it. And it was a very popular hit. I will say, as a postscript to this, eventually he sued me because it turned out that napkin was not a legal document and I was forced to basically give him all of the uh, money I made from that cover but you know it was a great song we had a great time and I hold no grudges but I will be honest I haven't spoken to him since that day in court so now that was the first time that you went to court you also went to court for being sued for sounding too much like yourself that was a strange thing I'm sure you know uh, what happened between me and my old manager from CCR and uh, we don't need to get into that but suffice it to say it wasn't a good experience with what happened with him and I was I, I vowed right then and there I will never do another CCR song in concert and quite frankly I haven't but what happened was I of course still had to play music I mean, I'm a musician, after all. That's what I do. And so I was playing songs and recording music and just being myself. And that son of a bitch sends me a letter that says, you have to cease and desist sounding like CCR. And I said, are you kidding me? I have to stop sounding like CCR. Really? Are you going to tell John Lennon to stop sounding like the Beatles? Well, to be fair, he was dead. Well, okay, are you going to tell Wings, are you going to tell Paul McCartney to stop sounding like Wings? Is that what you're going to do? Are you going to tell, let's see if I can come up with an apt analogy, um, would you tell Frankie Valli to stop sounding like the Four Seasons? Ha 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 See what you did there. I don't think you would. And, and I thought the whole thing was ridiculous, but we went to court. And they, the judge said they had a case. And I said, I tell you what, I will never do another CCR song. John, I'd hate to cut you off right there, but we are ridiculously low on time. So I'm just going to tell all my fans to go check out all of your stories at realrockmusic.com. Thank you so much for your visit. Chico's Vibe, please play us out.
John Fogarty was performed by Paul Goebel. Commercials provided by Sam Weller.